podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report, the podcast that takes you inside the world of organized crime, especially La Cosa Nostra. There's a lot of mafia podcasts out there, but there's only a handful that are hosted by people who really have inside knowledge of the life, not only as the son of one of the most prominent gangsters in the New York area, not only as a gangster himself, but as someone who has uh, seemingly made an effort to help a lot of people battling the same issues that led him to turn to a criminal career in the first place. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome Anthony Ruggiano Jr., an ex-mobster with the Gambino crime family and the host of the Reformed Gangster podcast. He also happens to be the son of uh, Fat Andy Ruggiano. Anthony, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining me uh, here on The Racket Report. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, no, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, if people are not familiar with your background and your family's background, it's really quite a story. It's not the stuff of one book. It's the stuff of about five or six books and a miniseries. Uh, tell people about your father. He really was ascendant in mafia life in at a time when the mob was ascendant in terms of its power and its reach here in the United States. Tell folks who your dad was. Well, my father was uh, Anthony Fat Andy Ruggiano. Uh, he was uh, a made member of the of the mafia. Um, he was actually was made by Albert Anastasia before the Gambino family was actually even called the Gambino family. But to go even further than that, he was actually raised pretty much by by made members because um, my grandfather unfortunately died when my father was six years old, and at the time my father's close friends. From childhood, all their parents and uncles were members of the mob. Uh, his two best friends, actually, one of their fathers was the Dasher. He was in Murder, Inc. And his other best friend, Lenny, his uncle was Happy Mayoni, and he was in Murder, Inc. So these are the houses that he grew up in, in East New York, Brooklyn. And, um, you know, as he got older, he got into a little trouble. He was in the Army, and he went AWOL, and he went to prison. Um, he had a, a beef with his uh, drill sergeant, and um, he, 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 he was arrested. They sent him to Levensworth, and when he came home, he went back to prison six months later. So he had a pretty, you know, uh, rough childhood. And um, when he got out of prison the second time, actually, he, him and his partner, were, uh, they were robbing poker games in Brooklyn, which was a big no-no. You don't just rob mob poker games. And uh, this other wise guy named Charlie Wagons, who was with Albert Anastasia, um, his poker game was robbed. And he reached out to find out who my father was. And my father was introduced to him, and he took a liking to him, and he gave my father a job. My father was probably in his early 20s, and that was his introduction into that family. 
you describe your father as a dad as being very loving, very present, uh, seemingly a very um, active and positive influence on your life as a child. Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people that may see mob movies or read about mob trials in the tabloids have a tough time understanding from time to time is the dichotomy between a person who can be a mafia hitman and go out and kill people and assault people and rob people by day and by night is a very loving uh, family man and father. I'm wondering if you could speak to that at all. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's what makes that lifestyle so unique. I think that's what draws people in, just how you explained it. So, yeah, so my father, um, that was, he just believed in it. I mean, his his whole life, was was the mafia i mean he believed in it wholeheartedly he thought the public were fools he hated you know it was anti-government he believed that they were the real mafia the government i mean uh and uh you know he just believed in what he what he what he did and you know as far as um committing crimes and violent acts you know that was just all part of the job i mean the mob considers murder work that's 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 like a a phrase they use like he did some work he did a lot of work or he did a mm -hmm. piece of work. That means, you know, he killed somebody. And my father, he was he was a, a great father. I mean, he loved sports. He loved uh, music. He loved food. And, you know, he, my brother and I, he took us from a very early age to Yankee Stadium. I mean, he used to actually, now here's, here's a mob guy, uh, a killer, you know, um, and I, in, the, in 59, 60, 61, he would take me to Yankee Stadium and I would wait outside the player's door with him because I wanted to see Mickey Mantle. And he would wait with me to, to, so I could watch Mickey Mantle walk out of the player's door and walk through the police barricade to his car. Um, you know, but he just believed in it. And, and many times, you know, he went out in the morning and committed acts of violence. I even just found a newspaper article about a homicide he committed in 1963. And I was only 10 years old when that took place. And, you know, later on when I was older, how I know it was him is because, you know, when I got older, he told me about it. Because when I got into the life, he started explaining things. And it's funny that you asked that question because my I found out who my father was through the older kids in the neighborhood. My kid brother, he found out who my father was through the newspaper because my father had gotten arrested and it was on the front page of the Daily News. And my brother had a little league game that night and my father came to all our little league games. And what happened was I went upstairs and my father asked me, did Albert read the newspaper? And I, well, he asked me first, my brother, if that's true about daddy. And I said, yeah, you know, and, um, I went upstairs and my father said, did Albert read the newspaper? And I said, yeah, he, he read it. And, uh, so we w both went back downstairs because my brother and I lived downstairs and my father, we had an apartment in the basement and we went downstairs and my father told my brother, did you read the newspaper article? And my brother said, yeah. And my father like looked at him and said to him, do you still want me to go to the game with you? And my brother said, yeah, of course I do. You know, um, and we went to the game and it's so funny because now when we got to the game, all the all the other kids' fathers, they just thought my father was just a little league father. Nobody knew he was a wise guy or anything like that. You know, now we get to the game and all the fathers come running over. Oh, my God, Andy, we didn't know. And, and you know, they, they were like all like uh, all and on now, you know, because now they knew he was a wise guy. You know, it was all over the newspapers. I was on the front page of the news. And uh, 
the windup was later on. He actually got like some of the kids that when they got older jobs, he got one kid in the carpenters union. They all started asking him for favors. So, you know, that was my childhood. Uh, that's uh that's wild hey, just so folks yeah. know the magnitude of uh the kind of person your dad was in the criminal underworld do you have any idea if you were to try to pin a number on it how many homicides he might have been responsible for well when i know of seven that he was personally responsible for but there was more because what happened was that he didn't tell me. Like when he got sentenced in Miami on his case, they had a hearing before the sentencing and um, a special agent from New York flew down to testify at his hearing. And, uh, and he testified that he was, he was, he was a suspect in 18 homicides. Um, but you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but he, he did a lot of work. You know, he, he did a lot of work at a young age, you know, um, he, the first thing he did was when, as soon as he met Charlie, he committed a homicide when he was like 24 years old. And, you know, he did he did special things because actually, which is very rare, in 1953, the books were closed. And that means when the books are closed, nobody be, could become a made member. And he was he they considered him what they call a special case. And the books were actually opened for him to become a made member. And uh, and so he got actually made when the books were closed. Hmm. And that's because back then you had to do, um, you know, you had to commit homicides for the family. Albert Anastasia used to call my father the kid. That was like his nickname. And he got taken in for a lot of shootings that never took place. He actually got taken in when Frank Costello got shot in the head in the hallway and lived. Um, there was a there was a subscription of, of, a, of a, if you look at the chin, who was actually the shooter, he he actually resembled my father a little bit. They were built the same. And back then, my father goes, every time there was a mob hit or something, they always scooped him up and put him in a lineup. And they actually took him in for shooting Costello but uh, and took him to the hallway, actually, and made him walk it up and down the hallway. because they said the guy sort of waddled, and he was, like, a little heavy. And, uh, of course, it wasn't him. And I asked him one day, my father kidding around, I go, you sure it wasn't you? And he said, no, because if it was me, he would have been dead. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so yeah. you did not um, know as a, a child necessarily the kind of life that your dad was involved in. I think you were about 13 when you learned who your dad was. What was that like for you? Did you view him differently after that? And uh, how did that change your relationship and maybe your perception of him? Well, when I was a kid, I always knew something was different, but I didn't know why. I always, I didn't, you know, like, I didn't actually know what he did for a living, but I knew it was something different. You know, even when I used to go to school as a young child, and they would say, you know, tomorrow we're going to talk about what, what our parents do for a living. And, you know, I would go home and ask him what he did for a living. And he told me he worked in a dry cleaners. And I always, and I knew that wasn't true, but I didn't actually know what was true. And I said it anyway in school, like I told the teacher, my father works in the dry cleaners, but I, I knew it wasn't, that's not what he did, but I didn't know what he did. When I got older and I drifted off my block at 13 and I started hanging out by the local pizzeria, I would go to the corner and I would hear the older guys like point me out and go, that's Fatty Andy's son. And like they would point me out. And actually one of them 
one day, like, sort of gave me a test to see if I really was Andy's son. And he walked up to me. His name, I'm going to forget his name. His name was Frank. And uh, he said to me, you're a fat Andy's son? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, what's his partner's name? So I said, what's his partner's name? His partner's name is Tony Lee. You know, so, like, they gave me a little bit of a test. And, uh, you know, I just felt special at that point. You know, I sort of felt like uh, I always I felt special and uh, it attracted me, you know, it attracted me, you know. Um, and as I got older, you know, and I when I was 16 and I actually went to work for him, you know, um, it was exciting. And that, that leads me to my next question. Do you think that the admiration that you had for your father and the fact that you looked up to him led to you going down that path and your own involvement in organized crime? Without a doubt. After I started working for my father, he tried to discourage me. He really didn't want me in the street. He would prefer, he, but he, he, he had no father, and he never really knew how to discipline me. Mm. Um. If that makes sense, like he was, he, he, you know, he, he never raised his hands to us. You know, he never, he never, you know, raised his hands to us. I mean, he raised his voice, but he never raised his hands to us. And after I started working for him, he took me with him one night. I talk about this a lot. He took me with him one night to this bar in Brooklyn and um, we walked in and it was, I'll never forget. It was a Friday night and the bar was really, really crowded. And, and we, you know, we walked up to the bar and of course, cause I was his son. I ordered a drink, you know, cause he, he allowed me to drink and we, I ordered a drink and he, I was about 17 and he ordered a drink. And eventually he turned around to me and he goes, do you notice anything? So I looked around and I go, yeah, the bar got, you know, it's starting to empty. The bar starting to empty out. And he goes, yeah, right. He goes, you, you know why the bar starting to empty out? I go, no, why? He goes, cause I'm here. I said, what are you talking about? Because I'm here, because you're here. He goes, because they don't know if I'm here to kill somebody, hit somebody, hurt somebody, abuse somebody, so they'd rather just leave than stay here because of me. He said to me, is that how you want to live? I was thrilled. <laughs> you know, it had the reverse effect on me. I was thrilled. I thought it was the greatest thing since ice cream. I said, oh, my God, I want respect like that. I want people to fear me like that. You know, it, it had the... the reverse effect that he was hoping it would have on me and um and you know and i just ran from there and then he started schooling me after he knew that i was i wasn't going to go back to school then he you know actually started schooling me in that life but a lot of it had to do i wanted to be him i mean that's that's the bottom line yeah, I can understand the um, the glamour and the, and the way that looks uh, to a young person. If you're if someone's a baseball player and their son wants to become a baseball player, you know that son doesn't necessarily get the opportunity to play for the Mets or the Yankees unless uh, they have the talent to do so. Uh, same thing for doctors. Same thing for a variety of other fields. Uh, a lot like in a lot like maybe politics and maybe business to some extent, there's really a remarkable amount of nepotism in the mafia world. I mean, it, it always seems that so many of the folks that rise to the level of being a, a captain or a, or a boss, that they have uh, parents, uncles that were part of that life as well. What role did nepotism play in your own ascendance up the mafia hierarchy oh yeah you know um i was fat andy's son i mean you know um and i was and i and uh you know i was i was running the streets with buddy with our neil son and i think it was sort of like a a royalty thing like um someone used to tease me and say we were like the kennedys 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we had the bloodline and we had the pedigree and, uh, and, uh, you know, but not everybody, every, I know a lot of um, sons of wise guys that got into the life, but they weren't all criminals or they weren't all gangsters or thugs or they, some of them, you know, they just were so-and-so's son and they got straightened out because their father had a ton of money and, uh, and, you know, and, and they just straightened out their sons. Mm-hmm. Like, so I was in the trenches like me. I started, you know, when I, when I went to work to work with my father, he put me to work in blackjack games and crap games and, you know, number offices. And I, and I went to prison for those jobs, you know, so, but uh, it was just a belief that they passed it on to us. But in reality, they should have, you know, like I, I, I made sure my son didn't get involved in the life. I made sure of that. Yeah, I mean, that's great that uh, you were able to kind of learn from some of the lessons that you experienced uh, when your dad was in the same position that you were in. Tell me about the first time that you met John Gotti. <laughs> well, after I drifted off my block, because, you know, back then in New York, we all stood on our blocks up until a certain age, and then we, like, drifted off our blocks into the neighborhood. So when I drifted off my block and started hanging out on 101st Avenue, my father started taking me to there was a lot of social clubs in my neighborhood that that wise guys had and um my father being that i was roaming around the neighborhood now my father didn't want me to get hurt and he wanted people to look out for me he wanted to make sure everybody knew who i was so you know if i did anything stupid like you know they wouldn't hurt me you know so or vice versa they would look out for me so he started taking me to the clubs and i already knew charlie wagons because he's the guy that proposed my father and had my father made so i already knew him Fish Club on 101st Avenue, and my father took me there to introduce me to everybody. And uh, that's the first time I met John Gotti. He was in the club that day, and I was introduced to him. I was about 13, and I was introduced to him and Angelo Quack Quack and his brother Jeannie and a, a few and a couple of other people. And uh, how uh, did there come a time that you yourself got straightened out and was formally inducted into the Gambino family? No, I was proposed. What happened was I was proposed twice. The first time I was proposed, I was waiting for the ceremony and I went to prison. The second time was when I got out of prison in 04. They proposed me again and I was sent for by uh, this fellow named Lenny DiMaria, who was a captain in the Gambino family, because I was technically with him and Nikki Carrazzo at the time, who was another captain in the Gambino family. They were two prior two members that my father actually made proposed they used to be with my father and uh, they had passed my name around and i and i and i everything got approved and lenny sent for me and told me um listen everything's approved you know we're just going to wait for the ceremony but you know you 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 have permission to go on sit downs you could you know represent yourself you don't need any representation everybody knows that you're going to get straightened out we're just going to have the ceremony in a couple of months i said fine a week later, I got arrested for a homicide, oh. Oh. and I never had the actually. So I was actually a p- proposed, but I never actually had the official ceremony. What was the reaction like in Gambino crime family circles when you learned that uh, Sammy Gravano, the underboss of the Gambino family, was going to flip and become a cooperator? You know, well, I was actually in prison when that happened. So what happened was. So what happened was, because I had a very, very good friendship. I had a very good relationship with John Gotti. I mean, he always looked up for me. Um, so I was in prison. I just had, I just got um, 
a one and a third to four for um, policy, which was a big, we had a big number ring in Jamaica, Queens. Now it's called the lottery. And we had gotten arrested for, yeah, we had, the, the government stole everything from us. I just want you to know that. Yeah. I mean, uh, so uh, we had gotten arrested for state RICO. And anyway, I took a plea. I was in, I was in actually in reception with this guy named Bobby, who was a wise guy with the Gambinos and him and I used to walk around the yard every night. And um, one night he came out, I was waiting for him and he, and he was like late. He was a little late. He missed the first move. And then he came out on the second move and I'm in the yard and, and, and I could see like something was wrong. And he walked up and he goes, that guy's co-defendant flipped that guy. We always referred to John Gotti as that guy. We never really used his name. We always said that guy and we knew it was John. And he told me, he says, that guy's co-defendant flipped. And I looked at him, I go, who, Frankie? I thought it was Frankie Loke. I had no, you know, like Sammy wasn't even a thought in my mind. And he said, no, Sammy. I said, Sammy. And I just looked and I go, I said, John's dead. And, you know, it was just, a, it was, you know, we, him and I were kind of upset. Everybody was upset. Yeah. I mean, but him and I were upset. Yeah, it, it, it was, it, every, we, we all knew that John had, you know, a serious problem once that happened. Tell me about how it all came down to for you. I know you uh, did uh, several different stints in prison for a few different crimes, ranging from you know uh, just the policy games to the ultra violent. When did you make the decision to decide this is not for me anymore? I'm done with this life. I'm moving on. I'm going to try something else. You know, listen. I was in that life since I was 16. I was groomed. I was you know, schooled and, you know, and cooperating was the furthest thing from my mind. When I was in prison the last time in, in 96, my father died in 99, Tony Lee died, his partner and John Gotti died. I mean, so all the three people that I was closest to that looked out for me, uh, were gone. Um, I got out of prison and I had to go to work. You know, when I was in prison after my father died, they pretty much took a lot of stuff from me. Um, Nikki Carraza, who was a captain in the Gambino family, he sort of stuck up to me. He had me transferred to his crew because the crew that I was technically would took everything that my father had. They stopped sending my mother money. Um, and, uh, so Nikki had me transferred to his crew. Um, and when I got out, it just was a different world. And when I got arrested in 05 for the murder, like, it took me over a year to make that decision. It's hard. Like I tried, I didn't want to, and I fought it and I tried to come up with money for the attorneys and I couldn't, and nobody was really looking out for me. And, um, I could see like my co-defendant, like things were happening that sort of, they were trying to put the weight on me and then like, but not in a way where they had to cooperate, but they were trying to, cause I was the last person with the victim. Like I picked them up and drove them to where, where the murder took place. And it took me a whole year and a cup, I would pick up the phone to call the FBI and I would hang it up and I would pick it up and I would hang it up and I would paste the floors. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was very traumatic for me because my, you know, my, my father was always in my ear, even though he was dead. And, you know, in, and then, um, then a couple of things happened. Like I saw this one guy, that I knew that I was pretty close with. And he told me, you know, why don't you just call the government? I said, how could you ask me a question like that? I can't disrespect my father like that. He goes, disrespect your father. Your father's dead. You did everything he ever asked you to do. You committed murder for him. These guys ain't looking out for you. 
you know, called and and I couldn't do, I still couldn't do it. And then what happened was the final straw. What happened was I had some legal issues going, and I need my and I needed some information from my co-defendant's attorney because I needed to put a motion in that would help me. So an attorney, a good friend of my father's and myself, was trying to help me, and he couldn't. And my co-defendant's attorney wouldn't help me. So this attorney, this mob attorney, who I, I won't divulge their name, he called me and told me, listen, these people are going to throw you under the bus. You need to call the government. And the next wow. morning I woke up. The next morning I woke up and, and, I, and I still couldn't make the call. I had, a, for some reason, which I never did, this one FBI agent, Jerry Conrad, had given me his card when I first got arrested over a year before that. And for some reason, I don't know why, maybe because he was nice to me or whatever the situation was, I kept his card, which I never did. I always used to rip them up and throw them out. But I kept his card. And the next morning I woke up, and like I said, I still couldn't make the call. I took the card, and I gave it to my wife. And I said, here, listen, when you drive to work, this was I was living out in Colmack, Long Island. She had to drive into Queens or to Ridgewood. I said, when you get to work, call this number and tell whoever answers the phone to come see me. And she did. It was, it was, it it was very, 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 very hard, you know, and you know, people ask me and I tell them, I say, listen, you know, like it was something that went against everything I was taught and everything my father believed in. And, you know, but I know, if my father was alive, I would have never done it. I would have never cooperated. I could never give up my father. I would have never gave up my father or Tony Lee or John Gotti, for that matter. I mean, I, and I know, I guess maybe I could say that's how I could still look in the mirror because I know in my heart I would have never gave them up. And anybody that really knows me pretty much knows that's the truth. But, um, you know, I made a decision. I hit a bottom. You know, it's like drugs. You know, I hit a bottom in 1988 using drugs and I got clean and, you know, I went to treatment and I addressed the issue and I hit a bottom with, with that lifestyle because I was never well, that, content. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 it sounds it. Uh, I want to follow up on your decision to cooperate and yeah. why cooperation seems to be such a common career ending for so many mafia folks. But first let me follow up on what you just said. The the role of addiction in your life, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, talk about that and how that sort of fed into your criminality and how you were able to kind of break that cycle of addiction. Well, you know, I, I was a criminal before I became an addict. So, I mean, d- the drugs for me came later on. So I was already in that lifestyle through my father, like, you know, um, way before I had an issue with cocaine. So, you know, I in the 70s, you know, I'm partying in New York with all, you know, with everybody, you know, everybody's blowing coke. I'm hanging out with celebrities, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with the biggest celebrities in the world, blowing coke with them at the Ritz. You know, you come to my house. Frankie Valley sitting in my dining room, you know, Jay Black is sitting in my dining room, Louis Prima is sitting in my dining room, you know, and, and I'm in Manhattan with all these celebrities getting high, you know, like we lived the life, you know, we, we were fat and these kids, we were, you know, we, I was in Manhattan almost every night. I mean, you walk up in the Ritz and you sit down with me, I'm, I'm blowing coke with David Bowie, Andy Warhol. You know, uh, it was it was just a crazy time. And then one day you wake up and you got and, you, you know, you have, a, you know, you, you have a, an issue an issue with the drugs. And, uh, 
you know, when I was 35, I just knew that um, it was killing me. You know, I, I was I was doing a, I was freebasing cocaine. You know, uh, my father had got 40 years in prison. He was in prison. Um, you know, things weren't going good. And I hit a bottom and I woke up one day and it was and I just got to the point where I knew that if I didn't stop getting high, I was going to die. And uh, and I made a phone call and uh, Tony Lee came to my house, my father's partner. And um, I told him I needed to get into this treatment center and, and he paid for it. You know, he paid for it for me to go there. And I went there and um, and I got clean. And when I came out of treatment, you know, John Gotti actually bought me a car because he didn't want me to get stressed out. Wow. Uh, wow. That, uh, that's something. Um, uh, it, it, by the way, just for folks that might be um, having uh, problems with similar issues or have loved ones that uh, that deal with similar issues, you have a foundation now called the Face the Music Foundation. What is this foundation? What are you trying to do with this? Right. I'm, so I'm an ambassador for a foundation called Face the Music. And what that is, it's a charity, a nonprofit organization that raises money to scholarship people into drug treatment, alcohol treatment. So it's it's a we feel that just because you don't have insurance or money, you shouldn't be denied treatment. If you're looking to help yourself and change your life and start new and maybe, you know, get off the, the chemicals that you're on. So this foundation will scholarship you and pay for your treatment. Uh, that's great. So uh, if people want to learn more, uh, what's the best way to do? Go to the website? Just go online. Just go to the website, Face the Music, and, uh, and or go to my website, AnthonyRuggianoJr.com, or go to my, you know, on, go, uh, it's all over my YouTube, my, my uh, Reformed Gangsters. Uh, we, you know, we, we talk about it in the beginning of every, every podcast. So, uh, yeah, my, my, yes, that's the best way to, great. to reach out to the uh, foundation. Uh, uh, you know, um, and it's a great, uh, great organization called facethemusic.org. And one of the things that I love that you're doing with this, and one of the things I love that the group does is there are so many people that might be battling with addiction and substance abuse, and they don't have health insurance. And a lot of times there are a lot of treatment facilities that they simply can't afford to go to because they don't have insurance. And uh, it's great that Face the Music goes out of their way to help folks that uh, may not have access to uh, um, you know, to insurance or other resources like that. Now, um, l- let me ask you, and I know this might be a, a tough thing to talk about, but let me ask you about your decision to uh, cooperate and the, the results right. of that uh, of that cooperation. It, I know um, it was very well publicized about eight years ago when you were ultimately sentenced by uh, Judge Jack Weinstein. Headline, mobster who had in-law killed gets off with time served. And if you read the tabloid coverage of this t- of this at the time, your essentially your prison sentence was just three days for helping to kill your own brother-in-law, even though your brother-in-law's family was in court asking Judge Weinstein for the harshest possible penalty. Um, What do you think of that? Obviously, you uh, don't want to be in prison, and I don't think anybody would begrudge you that. But what do you think if you were someone else looking at your situation? Here you have uh, a family that uh, doesn't have their father around, at least in part because of you. And instead of serving time in prison for the crime that you committed, you're free and they're uh, how do you? How would you view that if you were someone other than Anthony Ruggiano? 
I would probably view it the same way they viewed it, that it's, it's terrible. You know, um, I feel terrible for them. Um, I would feel probably the same way they feel, you know, but I, I look, I'm looking at it from a different point of view because even though he was my brother-in-law, he knew the deal. I'm not saying anybody deserves to die. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. But he knew the deal going in that this was Fat Andy's daughter, and he was told by numerous people to stay away from him, and he still chose to go with her. He was no angel. He was a killer himself. He committed murders. He was he was a dangerous person, and um, you know, and and he did something that he knew he shouldn't have done, and he paid the ultimate price for it. And I wish I could go back and, and change it and not and 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 stop it, but I I can't, you know. And at that time that it happened, you know, that was something that we did. That uh, that was this that was what happens when people do what he did, and I felt terrible for them. You know, my own niece told the judge to give me life in court. It was horrible. You know, I feel terrible for his family, but at the time I didn't. At the time of the murder, I I had no conscience, and I it, it didn't phase me. It didn't phase none of us that were involved in it, because that's just the frame of mind you were in when you're in the street. That's just the frame of mind that people that are in that life have. But now when I look back at it, you know, I think about it every day. You know, um, I wish I could go back and change it, but I can't. And, and I probably would feel the same way they feel. You know, Judge Weinstein really sort of, if you read his whole, his whole statement, to them, after they read the impact letters, he made, a, uh, a, he, he made a statement. And if you read what he said, he, he made it, he, he like, he, he told them, that they should blame the mafia because that's how I was raised, like sort of, and, and, and that if he put me in jail, he would take away a tool from the government that's helping prevent this from happening to the next person. Because, you know, I testified at six, six trials. I mean, I, I gave them a lot of information. I put, you know, we put away a lot of people that committed a lot of homicides. So, you know, that doesn't justify what I did. But, uh, you know, I, I, I paid the ultimate price for it also. Continuing now with uh, Anthony Ruggiano. He is the host of the Reformed Gangster podcast. Anthony, a lot of people will hear this, uh, your description of your involvement in your own brother-in-law's murder, and they're going to think that that sounds like a different world, something that they can't relate to. Explain to folks what's going on in your brain morally when you realize that you're in the midst of committing a murder of a family member? Well, you know, so I was, you know, when I was 16 and I got into the street with my father. So, you know, at that point in time, when we were planning the murder, it was honestly, um, as terrible as it may sound, it didn't even phase us. Like we, uh, you know, it was something that um, we felt had to be done. He was a dangerous person. He was putting his hands on family members. Um, and um, the, actually, the person that pulled the trigger volunteered because, he, you know, he wanted to become a made member of the mob, and that would, like, escalate his membership if he actually committed the murder. And, uh, you know, um, morally, it didn't even phase me at that time. Honestly, as terrible as that may sound, it, we, we, you know, he knew what he was getting into. Um, but he was told to stay away from my sister, and he didn't. And uh, and that was the outcome. Um, 
when I think back at it now, it was, you know, it, it was terrible. And I wish I could go back and, and not and change it, but I can't. But at that particular time, um, it was something we did. And, and we, it was a cold-blooded thing we did. I don't know if that uh, makes I've, any sense or no, verify. I, 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 uh, no, I, I, I can understand that, right? I mean, clearly, uh, this is what goes on in uh, in that world in general, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. For folks that are curious about what life is like when you're at your height, right? At the height of being involved with the mob, what kind of money can you make? All the different criminal enterprises that you're involved in, at the height, how much a week or how much a month might you be taking in? I realize that you're spending a lot of that money money oh. maybe frivolously at times but what yeah. kind of money can you be taken in oh i mean you could be taken you know i you could be taken in millions i mean my father took in um you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um I, I, um at one point in the 90s myself personally i was earning some weeks 15 20 thousand dollars in a week um with, between all the enterprises i had going uh michael francis for example was actually one of the biggest money earners ever in the mob. He was he was taking in eight to ten million dollars a week, which is unheard of. Um, cr it's crazy amounts of money. I mean, some people are big earners, and you know, I know I know wise guys that were broke that didn't didn't know how to earn money. You know, uh, that worked at jobs, but uh, but at the height, you know, tons of money. I mean, we my father was making uh, big money through so many different enterprises and a lot of it, most of it was illegal earnings, but uh, there was also some legitimate business involved also. And all told uh, your yeah. entire time in that life, how many murders did you participate in? I personally only participated in one actual murder but I participated in a couple of murder conspiracies that um, one didn't take place and one took place, but I wasn't actually there when the person was murdered. I, uh, I've seen you testify a couple of times. I think I saw you testify yeah. in the Asaro trial, and I think I saw you yeah. testify at the trial of uh, Bobby yeah. Glass's oh, uh, Vernaccia. Yes, I was in court. I covered both oh. of those trials. And you ca I thought you came across as a very credible witness. And I've seen a lot of people, including cooperators, who, uh, d who I thought did not come across as credible witnesses. I'm curious. I think all told, you probably testified in five or six trials did you find that you were more comfortable in your fifth or your sixth trial than at your first? Did you find that you became a better witness the more times that you did it? Honestly, no. Um, it's like, it's hard. It's like, it's tunnel vision. Um, no, I, I think, um, I, I, I think I felt the same throughout all the trials from the first one to the sixth one. I testified at six altogether. You know, it's, uh, it's strange because once, um, once you sit in that seat and you start to testify, it's even though there's people in the courtroom, a jury and spectators, you're so zoned in on the person that's in front of you asking you questions. You sort of zone everything else out. And, and it's just you and the person that's questioning you, especially when you're getting cross-examined, you know, because then they're really coming at you and try to, you know, cross you up and, you know, catch you in lies if you're not being honest. And I think I came across um, 
the way I did, and I and because I was honest. I mean, I I I never really I never made anything up. Um, you know, whenever whatever question they asked me, I, I gave an honest answer to the best of my recollection. And no, I, I felt the same way throughout all the shows. I think that's why I I. I they claimed I was a good witness. The government claimed I was a good witness because, um, you know, I think it's all, it all goes back to in the street. You know, if, if, um, it all depends on, you know, if you have some courage, I guess, you know, and, and I, and you no, know, I did, it was just like being in the street. It was just like being in a fight in the street. Yeah, no, I can understand that. That makes sense. Speaking of that Asaro trial, he was initially acquitted on that big case <laughs> that got all the attention that had to do with Lufthansa that heist. That was amazing. But, well, so what's more amazing to me is that these mafia trials, and I've covered a good many of them uh, in person and you know as a commentator, it right. used to be an acquittal was unheard of, but now we saw an acquittal in the Vincent Asaro case. We saw an acquittal and a hung jury in the John Gotti Jr. case. We saw Joe Waverly, Joel Cacase acquitted. We saw an acquittal in the case of Francis B.F. Guerra. We saw an acquittal in the case of Tommy Gioli. We saw an acquittal in the case of uh, Romanello. What do you think it says about where juries are these days, particularly in the New York area, that these cases, which used to be automatic convictions, we're just seeing acquittal, 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 acquittal. Right. You know, it's amazing because, you know, almost every one of those names you mentioned was absolutely 100% guilty of the crimes they were charged with. And they walked out of the courtroom. Um, I think it has to do a lot with the with the with the ethnicity of the people now that live in New York. I think a lot of the people are anti-government, anti-law enforcement, um, and it's a lot to do with Hollywood, with pictures of glorifying the mob, and uh, um, and it just blows my mind. It blew my mind that Vinny got found not guilty. I mean, I know for a fact Vinny was guilty of everything they charged him with. I mean, I, 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 my father literally sold the jewelry from the Lutunzas heist. I mean, Vinny and Jimmy Burke brought my father the jewelry from Lutunza, and my father fenced it. And, you know, and Vinny got found not guilty. I think it's a lot to do with, with the immensity of the people in New York City. It's, um, and 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 the anti-law enforcement. I mean, you see what's going on today. The, literally, the, the law enforcement are, are the enemy. Mm. And, and first of all, and maybe they figure we got such a great movie out of that Lufthansa heist that uh, they'll let bygones be bygones. But when you say um, when you when you say the ethnicity, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth at all. But yeah. do you mean yeah. that because there are more minorities in New York these days, and maybe they know what it's like to be hassled by the police or other law enforcement entities, that they're more likely to deliver a not guilty verdict? Exactly. Exactly, and 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 the, and the, you know the music, the Hollywood, everything's glorified. Um, everything's made to look glamorous, and um, you know even at my first trial, you know even my brother-in-law, you know you know my, we there was two eyewitnesses to a murder, and 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 the person that was charged with it didn't get found guilty of the murder. Got found guilty of everything else, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. You explained it perfect. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, like John Gotti Jr., um, you know, who has, you know, it's he's glamorized. His father's glamorized. He walked out of court. You know, um, I know the guy since he's a kid, He, you know, he was a criminal. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, and, I, and I covered all four of those Gotti trials, um, yeah. and, you know, and I know that case pretty well. I think a lot of the problem with that case is the government waited so long to charge him so that they he was right. able to use that withdrawal defense because he hadn't, uh, there was no evidence right. of mafia activity within the five years. Had the government maybe not been so, you know, greedy and tried right. to squeeze every drop of prison sentence uh, time out of him, might have been a different result. But we could do a whole separate show. Right. On- but, you know, but, you know, you touched on a perfect, you know, to, to the perfect example is his last trial. He was indicted in Florida, in Tampa, right. Florida, and everything they could to get the case brought back to New York. And they won Charlie Canisi, who was an excellent attorney. He questioned me on the Bobby Glasser's trial. He was probably the best defense attorney I went up against as far as testifying. He was he gave me the hardest time. Um, He got the case brought back to New York and John got an acquittal. Whereas well, if look, he was on trial in Florida, he may have got, you know, they knew he had a, a better shot at getting found guilty in Florida than in New York. There's a perfect yeah, uh, example. Yeah. Uh, Charlie was a, a close friend of mine. In addition to being a yeah. great lawyer, um, he was a, a wonderful storyteller a, at lunch or whenever <laughs> yeah. we go out to dinner. He, the guy had more stories than, uh, than anybody yeah. I've ever met, uh, including more than a lot of gangsters, but yeah, um, I'm sure he did. Just going back to your decision to cooperate. Now, I, right. I like I said, I've seen a lot of folks uh, make the decision to cooperate, and they <laughs> essentially get a slap on the wrist for their crimes. And I could tell that they're lying a- in court. I never got that impression with you, and I, I never heard from any defense attorneys or any defendants that anything that you said was untrue. But a lot of folks are going to listen to this and say, "Here's a fella that Anthony Ruggiano that lived a life of crime." made money, did all sorts of horrible things, participated in some murders. And then when it comes time to pay the piper, he instead gets off because he's willing to cooperate and testify against all of his criminal cohorts. Does it create a misincentive if we're going to give a, for lack of a better description, a get out of jail free card to people that are willing to testify against folks that they've been committing crimes with their whole life right well first of all you know up until that point i I have i you know people have to understand i spent already 14 years of my life in prison i was in i went to prison the first time when i was 23 years old um i've been in and out of prison my whole adult life i had 14 years in prison 14 years spent in prison so i already gave up a lot i i never i didn't see my children grow up um you know, that's on me. You know, um, while I was in prison, I lost my father. He passed away. His partner passed away before I was in prison. While I, also while I was in prison, John Gotti passed away. So all the people that I was uh, close with that looked out for me and, and that I looked out for were gone. And when I came out, I came out to a different world. And, and the people that were out there weren't really my, my friends um, mm. anymore. They, they, you know, I had to go drive a truck you know, to earn a living. Yeah, they wanted to straighten me out, but uh, for their own reasons, because they knew I, I, I would be good for them. I could run around for them. I knew the game. And that decision I made was, it took me over a year to make that decision. It, w- it, was, tor- it, w- it was torture. And then, um, and I needed to change my life. I couldn't live that life anymore. You know, I, see, I can't, I can't speak for anybody else, but I just hit a bottom with that lifestyle. Like I, I just didn't want to be that person anymore. 
you know, um, and 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 I and I cooperated, which was uh, a traumatic experience for me. Believe it or not, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even make the call. I made my my mother make the call, but this is my my mother. I mean, I'm sorry, my wife. I made my wife make the call, but this is what the government offers us. I mean, listen, um, the government knows what kind of people we are. The government knows more better th- what we did better than we know what we did. They knew things about me that I forgot. I mean. You know, and this is what they're offering people, and and people are going to take advantage of it. You know, how do they sleep at night knowing they're putting us in the street? Right. I wonder the the same thing. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I wonder the same thing. Nobody ever asks them that, but they'll say they need us for tools to fight. Like Weinstein said, he he freed me because I was a tool for the government to fight the mafia, and they need tools. That's how he he phrased it in some kind of wording like that like i i became a tool for the government which i i i guess i was but um you know how does the doj sleep at night how does the fbi sleep at night I think those are great questions, by the way. And yeah. uh, when I had uh, uh, John Gleason on this show, uh, I asked him those same questions about making the deal with uh, with Sammy Gravano, who then went out and ran an ecstasy ring in Arizona. So I think those are uh, great questions. Right. Tell me about your decision to launch your podcast, uh, the Reform Gangster Podcast. What are you hoping to do with this podcast? What are you hoping to get across? Well, you know, I, 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 I was I, I started doing a couple of shows. I did a show on, on uh, National Geographic, Narco Was the Mob, with John A. Light. And then I, I, uh, I, uh, a manager came to me, Pasquale, and uh, offered me a contract. And then I did, a, I did Vlad TV. I did an interview on Vlad TV. And I started getting a lot of interest in my life story. And a lot of people, and I, and, I taught, and I spoke about my recovery, you know, from drug addiction and how I'm clean a lot of years. And I started getting a lot of a lot of comments and a lot of people reaching out to me on social media. Once I once I my manager put me on Instagram and, and Facebook, a lot of people started reaching out to me. So we thought of just it would be a good idea to launch my own podcast um, to talk about you know the real truth about the American Mafia because you know I hear a lot of people out there, um, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone personally in particular. Some people out there with these podcasts are telling the truth and some aren't. And I know that for a fact because I was out in the street for 50 years. So I pretty much know who's who. And I thought it would be a great idea to get my story out there mm. to, to, to let people know what really went on, what really goes on in that lifestyle, how, how, how at the end of the day, it's not glamorous. And, uh, you know, it, it devastates families, my family, victims' families. And to, so to get my message out there, to help somebody and to help myself and, and, and maybe, you know, earn a living through it and, and help somebody. And if people want to listen to that, what's the best way for them to, uh, to find just it? Just go on uh, YouTube, Reform Gangsters, or go online, reformgangsters.com, or go to my website, anthonyruggiano.com, and there'll be links on it. Okay, anthonyruggiano.com, uh, R-U-G-G-I-A-N-O.com. You, uh, uh, Anthony Ruggiano, jr.com. Um, you mentioned earlier, um, Nick Carrazzo. There's another prominent Carrazzo in uh, New York area crime circles, not for his work as a gangster, but for his work in the courtroom. That's Joseph Carrazzo. I think he's represented you, um, at, at different times, or maybe it was your dad or maybe both. But, um, 
he is someone that the government has sought to disqualify from certain cases because of his close relationship with not only his actual family members, but uh, there's actually been claims that he was uh, a little more, a little closer than an attorney should be to the affairs of the Gambino crime family. Do you think an attorney like Joseph Carrazzo has sort of been unfairly demonized by the government? Is that an excuse to have him thrown off cases or is that fair? Does he cross that line from time to time? (laughs) Okay. I know Joseph since he was born. I used to hold Joseph's hand and walk into Yankee Stadium with him when he was a kid in the 70s. Everything they say about him is true. He's, he is, he's a mob member, blatantly. That's the best way I could explain it. He is an out-and-out mob member. I, um, and I, I know him all his life. He defend, I, had, um, I know his family intimately, his father Jojo. My father, you know, they were all with my father. My father raised them. I have pictures of them with my father when they were teenagers, 20-year-old kids, Mickey, Jojo, Lenny, Di Maria. Um, that was my father's crew until they all got made, until they all became made members. He, he's, he's, he's a mobster. He's an attorney. That's a mobster. All right, so he is not being unfairly demonized by the government, it sounds like. Not at all. Not, not uh, at all. You, you alluded to the all. fact that... And he, um, he's an he's a excellent attorney, don't get me wrong. He, he knows his way around a call. He's a very intelligent kid. He, he's a, he's a, he's an excellent criminal lawyer, but he's a mobster. Got it. Uh, got it. Makes yeah. sense. Uh, you've been really generous with your time before I let you go Two oh, very quick questions. I want to ask you about before we run out of time, you alluded to the fact a little earlier that you were proposed for induction into the mafia. You were going to be made. I think, uh, one of the things that those of us that know about the mob through, uh, watching movies and, uh, the occasionally observing trials is that you have to be you know, 100% Italian. Now, uh, Gene Borello, who was, I think, your cousin and also a government witness. Yeah, he's my cousin. Um, he says that you were going to be made. Uh, I have heard, and I don't know if this is accurate, I have heard that you're part American Indian. Is no. that true? You're not. No, that's, that's, that's not true. My cousin Gene is part American Indian, not me. No, my cousin Gene's father, gotcha. Gene Sr., is half American Indian. Gene's father is half. Gene's father, Gene's grandfather on his father's side was Italian, and Gene's grandmother on his father's side was American Indian. This has nothing to do with me at all. It's my cousin God, Gene. Just, would that have stopped Gene from being straightened out? No, not 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 today. Today it's not. You don't have to be a hundred percent. I believe now today it's your father has to be Italian because look at John John Gotti Jr. has got some Russian Jew in him. His mother has uh, is is a quarter Russian. Uh, Russian. Uh, her family comes from Russia. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So Victoria no. always told me she was half Polish, half half Italian. Uh, yeah. But um, but it uh, could you know, be I'm Polish, not breaking... Jewish. I'm not sure. I always thought it was Russian. Yeah, I'm not going to break out a genealog- genealogical yeah. chart when she. Yeah, uh, but uh, when uh, she no, yeah, telling... no, you could, you don't need to be 100 percent Italian today. Um, I believe it's just your father now. They they changed it. 
if people are wondering, what is the mob like today? It seems like, as you said, you talked about sports and uh, you've talked about policy becoming the lotto. It seems like so many of the enterprises that the mafia used to make money in, whether it's sports gambling, whether it's drugs, whether it's this, whether it's that, it's becoming largely decriminalized and the government is largely right. getting the cut that used to go to the mob. What role <laughs> is left for the mob to play today? Well, I mean, there's always going to be supply and demand. I mean, you know, they still probably have their hands in construction. They still have their hands in bookmaking. You know, they just have websites. Um, they still have their hands. You know, they're still selling stuff on tax cigarettes. Uh, they're still into Wall Street. It's just a different generation. It's a different, you know, like the way the way I, I it's funny. I was speaking to somebody the other day. The way I made money, even up into the 90s, the way I made money, and I made big money in the 90s, I could never operate those things today. I, can, I, I don't know how I would earn a living today if I was in the mob. Um, the way I made money in the 90s, I could never do today because of the surveillance, because of the cameras, and, um, and, and, the, and the why. It would be impossible for me to make money today. So I mean the mob, you know, they're like they they're like a snake. They shed their skin and grow new skin. So that, there's always going to be people figuring ways out to make money. Probably a lot of drugs. I'm sure they're into a lot of drugs. They're into big Medicare schemes. You know, setting up offices with Medicare and banging out. You know, X-ray. It's just a, a, all kinds of ways to still make money. It's just not the same way as I made it. And then lastly, this is a question I ask everybody, uh, lawyers, uh, gangsters, law enforcement officials, journalists, in your opinion, um, so much of what we know about mob life is told through the lens of Hollywood. Of any gangster picture you've ever seen, what do you think is the most realistic, maybe not the best picture, but the most realistic depiction of mob life? Oh, it has to be good fellows. Goodfellas. Most uh, good, it has to be Goodfellas. Good, I would say uh, uh, Goodfellas. Um, Dino was pretty on the money, but Goodfellas is probably the number one realistic movie, especially personally for me. I mean, when I first saw it, I was blown away by it because it was the first time I actually saw my life on the screen. You know, The Godfather was The Godfather. It was a great cinematic movie. You know, that's. When I saw that as a kid, it was great. But when I saw Goodfellas in the theater, and it was just so, so real to me and so personal, so I would definitely have to go with Goodfellas. Gotcha. All right. Uh, well, we've been talking with Anthony Ruggiano. You could catch more of him on the Reformed Gangsters podcast. You could just Google Reformed Gangsters. It comes right up. There's also a ton of interesting information on his website at anthonyruggiano.com. A fascinating story. It's the stuff not of, uh, not of one film, but probably a whole series of films. <laughs> Anthony, thanks for being so generous with your time, and thanks for being so candid in talking about some issues that I know have probably been difficult for you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Anytime. Have a good holiday, Frank. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. Merry Christmas Anthony. to you too. All right. Bye. It
If you enjoyed this podcast, I do hope you'll subscribe. If somebody sent it to you, you could just search The Racket Report with Frank Morano on uh, any podcast app. Hit the subscribe button, and every time there's a new episode, you'll instantly get it downloaded to your wireless device whenever we post one. And uh, if you want to offer me any feedback, you're certainly welcome to email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace. I'll see you on the radio.